Hey, my name is Harrison Pelham, and today I'm going to be discussing Zarefsky's 2009 What Does an Argument Culture Look Like? and Bitzer's 1968 The Rhetorical Situation. Now, the argument I'm going to be making and the point or the point that I'll be making is that Zarefsky's piece, What Does an Argument Culture Look Like? is actually a better basis for understanding the basics of argumentation. And that, in my opinion, Zarefsky's piece should be read first, whereas Bitzer's piece would be better off being read second. Now, both Bitzer and Zarefsky do define what an argument is. However, Zarefsky goes into much, much, much more detail. He actually discusses the very culture that argumentation breeds. And he's thereby describing how argumentation takes form in a society that allows it to prosper. Additionally, Zarefsky goes on to describe what fuels an argument, i.e., which, according to him, are the tensions that are productive to the debate. Zarefsky def- describes five tensions. Contingency, the first one being contingency and commitment, which is how strongly one feels about the situation and the solution that they are proposing. Partisanship and restraint, which is basically the level of dedication one has for the beliefs. Personal conviction and sensitivity to the audience, which is basically how the audience and the arguer's knowledge of the audience affects their style. Reasonableness and subjectivity, which is basically how commonplace the arguer's ideas are, how easily digested they'll be by the audience, or just a group of people in general. And lastly, decision and non-closure which is basically how decided the argument is in the end. Now, no argument is ever truly decided, according to Zarefsky, which I actually agree with, for sure. But decision and non-closure basically describes how, how close to definitive your argument reached. However, tension is any challenge. The, the, these five tensions are not the only tensions there are. Tension is any challenge that can affect the way an arguer frames his debate, debating tactics. Now, well, Zarefsky kind of provides this very unique idea of the culture that argumentation breeds, Bitzer, on the other hand, has a much greater focus on the structure of an actual argument, or of discourse in general, rather than the contents. Bitzer does briefly go over the importance of contents when he is discussing relevancy, that's for sure. But when Bitzer begins to utilize the example of the short and determined discourse used by fishermen, readers can clearly see that Bitzer is more focused on the structure rather than the content. According to Bitzer, the three very basic levels of argumentation are exigence, or the problems being discussed, the audience, and the constraints. And constraints could be more easily understood as the prior beliefs that affect the arguer. Now, Bitzer does also discuss how situation affects the argument being made. To to summarize Bitzer's writing on this piece, um, if the debater or speaker is not aware of the interests and the desires of the audience at that moment, then they'll be unable to properly appeal to them. Now, In conclusion, I believe that by defining argument culture, Zarefsky gave a better and more informative definition of what an argument is. Bitzer, on the other hand, was more focused on the structure 
of discourse and argument in general. Now, although these were both very informative works, they're both very important to understanding, understanding argumentation and debate and discourse, I would argue that reading Zarefsky's work first would be more beneficial due to the fact that Zarefsky gives the reader a much ba better basis for understanding argumentation. Hey, this is Harrison Pelham, and today I'm going to be talking about Zarefsky's 2004 Presidential Rhetoric in the Power of Definition, as well as Schiappa's 1993 Arguing About Definitions. So my argument for today's podcast is that Schiappa's definition better applies to both our class and public debate in general. So I'll start off by discussing Zarefsky's definitions of definitions and um, how he discusses them through a presidential insight. So Zarefsky argues that presidents historically has, have used their definitions to help them frame the argument they're going to make to the public. Now, presidents uh, generally use these to win over public opinion, of course, and because of their influence, their ability to communicate with the media, they're largely able to frame the entire argument as well as the situation. Um, the, the public is generally willing to accept a president's definitions, and he actually Zarevsky actually gives eight examples of this. Um, the most interesting ones I saw was Reagan's framing of welfare programs. A lot of modern supporters of uh, Reagan's presidencies uh, are largely using the arguments Reagan made about the abuse of the welfare program. So his definitions are still being accepted within the modern era, you know, decades after his presidency. There's also, even more interestingly, Reagan's framing of liberalism, because, of course, in the modern American politics, a liberal is generally someone who believes in more social programs, and that largely stems from Roosevelt's pro from Ro Roosevelt's definition, which is nearly a century ago. It shows just how influ influential a presidential definition can be. And seeing as with the uh, current news that's going on, I also thought Bush's framing of the 9-11 terrorist attacks was an interesting case study that Zarefsky pointed out, um, just because he defined it as a act of war, and since then, the September 11th terrorist attacks have been used as a logic for engaging in warfare. Um, Schiappa, on the other hand, argues that definitions are the very basis for debate. His, his idea is coming from a much more small-scale version of debate, whereas the presidents come from such a large-scale version of debate. So he puts it a little bit differently. According to him, the entire point of a debate is to convince the opponent to accept your definition so you can frame the debate to your advantage. Once you have your definition accepted by your opponent, you're working uphill. You have to, you have to use their very framework to beat them in an argument, and th that's nearly impossible. So that's why, according to Schiappa, if, if you are able to convince your opponent to accept your definitions you've already taken the first step towards winning. You are already in the advantageous position. So he also discusses just a little bit dissociation, so I'm going to touch on it myself. Um, that's basically the disconnect between ideas and beliefs. And that's just, uh, it can be used to avoid a definition that one does not find favorable to them or push away a definition that like your opponent in a debate or the person you're debating against 
um, might be pushing. That's how you would utilize dissociation against them. Um, so my final thoughts, I think Shiapa's argument arguments are the more beneficial one for a more casual, less large-scale debater. On the presidential front, obviously, you know, Zarevsky makes a very good argument on the effect of presidential definitions. But seeing as we're on such a more small scale, I think Shiapa has a much better definition. Um, yet, um, opponents in debates are also less willing to accept uh, their opponent's definition as compared to the general public is just so willing to accept the presidential definition because of their uh, influence, their power, and their media uh, attention. So in conclusion, Shiapa, for almost all debates in which you're not in a situation where your ideas are not constantly in the light, Shiapa's definition works much better than Zarefsky's. Hey, it's Harrison, and today I'm going to be talking about Brockerid's 1972 Arguers as Lovers. So, first off, I'd like to say why I chose Brockerid rather than Fisher, and I think it's pretty self-evident that he uses a lot of provocative and interesting arguments, um, most of which I don't agree with or don't like in many ways, but I think he's very interesting to discuss at least. So, first of all, I'd like to discuss the vulgarity um, in his metaphor and how it actually in some ways or most ways detracts from his actual argument and the actual point he's trying to make. So I feel as though the rape language and the sex language in general, but specifically the rape language, just elicits such a nasty feeling, whereas it's not necessarily... The, the rape style of argument that he's discussing is not necessarily a disgusting form of argument. So from now on, I'm going to be calling it the aggressive form of argument because first off, I don't like using that language repeatedly. And second off, I think it's a better descriptor of the form of argument in of itself. So next, I'd like to talk about the actual argument Brockerid's making and say how I don't feel like it works very well. By placing an arguer into three categories, Brockridge's causing an oversimplification. Now, he does discuss this later on in his article, how you could expand upon the different forms of argument more and more in the sex metaphor, but I don't think that even works. I, I still don't think he's even made his own... Uh, he's made his point perfectly. I would rather argue that instead of putting the arguer into three categories, I would put the argumentation style into three categories. And although he argues that the co-arguer is how one decides their argumentation style. I would say that the situation decides the argumentation style. So, for example, with the aggressive style, you'd want to use that with someone who you were trying to make look foolish. And although you could, you could say, why are you trying to make someone look foolish? There's actually quite a few reasons as to why you'd make want to make someone look foolish. And the first and most prominent example I can think of is someone whose ideas are going to cause harm to society as a whole. In a debate situation, when you are debating with someone whose idea, who are who is very ignorant in their ideas and they are unwilling to change their mind, you can at least try to make them look foolish in front of the viewers of that argument. That would be when I would use the aggressive style of argument. So next I'd like to discuss, of course, the seducer argumentation style. And the seducer is trying to charm and play on the ignorance of their opponent. And 
Although I, I will agree to some extent that this is a less constructive method. I will I'll agree with Brockert on that. I still think it has some uses. This, this could be utilized with someone who has the best of intentions, especially morally, but is very ignorant to the situation. So their ideas aren't great, but you can start to seduce them into the ideals. You can start to teach them the ideas. So the last method he discusses is the lover's method. And according to Brockerid, this method is more focused on constructive uh, building arguments where you're trying to – where you are both working towards the same goal, but you might have different methods of getting there. So that's the lover's form of argument. And I would say that this is not always the most useful method. I mean that's that's pretty self-evident. Sometimes you're not working towards the same goal and your opponent is refusing to be convinced of the – morality of your goal. So in that situation, I would say that lovers is not the best method, unlike Brockerid. He That is his argument. So in conclusion, I think his uh, his method of saying that, it, that an arguer needs to be in these three categories at all times is kind of foolish, and it's kind of an oversimplification of the situation. And I would say that all three argumentation styles, he, he kind of seems to only like the lover style. And if we're going to put it into these three kinds of argumentations, I would say that all the styles are perfectly acceptable depending on the situation.